want to uh, introduce things this morning by considering um, what I call the new uh, puritanical culture that is upon us. My doctoral, the emphasis of my doctoral studies um, is religion in the 18th century colonial America, and uh, that religion in many ways was inherited from the 17th century New England Puritans, as many of you know, and so I've been deep in those studies, and um, when you read, I have obviously read a lot of the Puritan books and works and their theology, and when you read uh, the Puritans, you will find yourself tremendously blessed. But I had never done any real study of the practices of these Puritans, and if you read that, you will find yourself equally discouraged. Uh, they formed a what can only be called a merciless society. Of course, the most famous example, the one that you, you, you're familiar with, is the infamous uh, Salem witch trials, but that's just an anecdote of a broader culture that they formed. Uh, moral indiscretions were met with a fierce vengeance. Uh, people were publicly shamed at best for their behavior and expelled out from the community alone into the dangerous New England forests. At worst, the Puritans who articulated the mercy of God perhaps better than any post-Reformation community ironically formed this most merciless society. Now, thankfully, we've moved on, but in some sense, what I'm trying to say here is, have we really? Um, the word cancel culture gets thrown around way too much. It's overused. It's overapplied. But there is no doubt truth to it. Something is taking place in our society. And what I'm saying is that ours is the age of a secular Puritanism, uh, we have our own versions of blasphemy laws, like the Puritans had, speech that is completely off-limits within public life. We have a progressive moral order that must be followed with legalistic precision. So one, word, one wrong word, one wrong move, uh, one bad moment caught by a cell phone, one uh, wrong social media post, and you will be shunned, you will be publicly humiliated, and perhaps even banished from societal life. So I'm thankful, I'm thankful that America has moved on from burning people at the stake and banishing them to forests to survive on their own. But make no mistake, America has not lost her merciless ways. We are as merciless as ever. Well, we gather together this morning in protest of cancel culture. Not the obnoxious, uh, politicized, equally merciless protests that we see in the news. We gather together to protest mercilessness with the weapon of mercy. We gather to proclaim, blessed are the merciful. I'm going to do with this beatitude what I've done with each of them. I'm going to look at the kingdom posture in the first half, kingdom promise, in the second. Let's start here with the posture of those who belong to the kingdom where Jesus says, blessed are the merciful. Now let me do with this what I've done with several of them and tell you first what it is not. Mercy is not uh, mere kindness. You should be kind to others. That's a good thing. But mercy demands much more. Remember, this is the moral order of God's kingdom. These are the 
ethics, the unique ethics that belong to followers of Jesus. Our world values kindness, prioritizes kindness, practices kindness. I got caught uh, the other day, I got caught in one of those pay it forward lines at Starbucks and, uh, you know, the, the car in front of me bought my coffee. And so they asked if I wanted to buy the car behind me. I said, sure. And that smiling barista said, great, that'll be $38. I mean, what are you going to do? Like, is the guy preaching through the Beatitudes going to break the pay it forward line? So, so we, you know, we, we love, we love bringing them back to kindness, pay it forward. We, our, our culture does kindness and that's a good thing, but mercy As I said, I'm arguing we live in a merciless world. Biblical mercy requires more, something that goes way beyond kindness and is rarely found in our world. The original Hebrew carries the meaning of a a deep compassion. Some people even like to translate it pity. So I can be kind to you while at the same time remaining indifferent to you. Not so with mercy. Mercy demands my compassion. Kindness says, I'm not going to hurt you. Great. Mercy says, I'm going to help you. This is why our world is full of kindness, because kindness costs very little, but mercy, biblically defined, comes at a cost. You can call it mercy, you can call biblical mercy costly compassion. But there's one more little nuance to mercy that is really, really important to understand. There's a power dynamic to mercy. A more precise definition of mercy would be costly compassion from those in power. The Old Testament is, of course, full of people pleading for God's mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. In the New Testament, that plea is directed at Jesus. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. These are the cries of the powerless to the powerful. And even outside Scripture. For example, during the historic eras of monarchies, subjects of the crown would plead for mercy to the king. Mercy is something those in power are able to extend. But that doesn't necessarily always mean power in the way we think of power in the conventional way. Perhaps the first application you think of when you think of mercy is forgiveness, and that's, that's right. you're right to think that way. The merciful are those who choose forgiveness, not vengeance, when they are wronged. But there is still a power power dynamic at play here as well, because it's those who have been wronged who hold the power to extend or withhold mercy. So, an incredibly powerful person in the eyes of our world harms someone that is incredibly lowly in the eyes of our world, where then, well, then the powerful one is at the mercy of the lowly one. So in this way, what I'm trying to say is every act of forgiveness is actually the choice of someone in power to extend mercy. And yes, we should probably start there. This is fundamentally what it means to be merciful. The beatitude is calling us to be a people who, when wronged, respond with mercy, not vengeance. That's what you're signing up for when you join the kingdom of Christ. Mercy toward those who harm you. That doesn't mean they deserve it. In fact, they don't. It wouldn't be mercy if they did. 
when wronged, you have the power to extend mercy or not, and you don't have to grant it unless you're a follower of Jesus. We do have to. It's not optional because we, as Jesus says, we are the merciful ones. That doesn't mean no bound, important caveat, that doesn't mean no boundaries against those who harm you. That doesn't mean even no consequences or just penalties against those who harm you. But it does mean no vengeance, no retaliation, no hatred or malice in your heart. It means when you have the power to forgive, you extend mercy every time. The vengeful have no place in God's kingdom, only the merciful. But this power nuance is also important to understand the other way uh, mercy is used in Scripture. Quite honestly, the predominant way that mercy is used in Scripture. When Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, he frames it as a story of mercy. You know, you know the parable. A man is robbed, uh, stripped, beaten, left for dead. The priest ignores the helpless man. The Levite ignores the helpless man. But the Samaritan binds his wounds and takes him to the inn and tells the innkeeper, take care of him, um, pay me, I'll pay all the bills, just uh, nurse him back to health and I'll cover all the costs. And then that Samaritan is described as, quote, the one who showed mercy. And that's interesting because if we only conceptualize of mercy as forgiveness, then it doesn't make sense. The beaten man had done nothing to the Samaritan, and yet it says that the Samaritan showed him mercy. How so? Again, it comes down to power. Because the Samaritan had the power to help the dying man, and he chose to do so. He didn't have to help, but he could help. And it's the merciful who helped. And so this definition of mercy makes sense of so many passages in Scripture where mercy is spoken of as care for the poor and the needy and so forth. For example, that famous passage in Micah 6.8 where we are told to do justice and love mercy. Those go together for a reason. Those who do justice in our world are those who love mercy. Because to love mercy means that you love to use your power for costly compassion toward the needy. And so with all this in mind, we realize that mercy has both individual and social implications for us this morning. Individually, yes, of course, you are merciful to those who harm you. But socially, we extend mercy towards the wrongs of the world. In a world of merciless indifference to the needs of others in a world that just looks out for number one and couldn't care less about the needs of everyone else. We, the merciful people of God's kingdom, use our power, our resources, our time, our talent. All of these things are leveraged for costly compassion. And I want to linger here on this one for a moment. Because I think it's the social demands of mercy where our tradition can improve. I talked about this already in several sermons, but one of the things I got convicted of during my sabbatical is the lack of social mercy in our tradition. Why is it that the liberal expressions of Christianity tend to be the ones who prioritize feeding the poor, welcoming the outcasts, freeing the oppressed, healing the sick, and so forth? If you go to a PCUSA church this morning, 
chances are you will hear a sermon on one of those themes. That's what, they all, that's what they're all about and good for them. But shouldn't it be the conservatives? We're the ones with the theological resources to motivate mercy. We are the ones who refuse to compromise the gospel that says we are sinners, hell-bound sinners, but in Jesus, God has had mercy on us. Should not we be the most merciful ones? Yes, we should. And so I have this dream. What if the most theologically, what if the most theological conservative church in our city was at the same time the most merciful church in our city? Why not break that paradigm? And so committed are we to that vision that we hired a pastor whose literal job description is mercy. Luke Rakestraw. That's why we hired him. Here we are, this big PCA church with so many resources surrounded by some of the most impoverished communities in our city. How can we call ourselves a Christian church if we just gather for worship blissfully indifferent to the needs of this community? So that's Luke's job. My pastoral focus is preaching and vision. Mark's is pastoral care, congregational care. Will's is focusing on ministry and expansion. Luke's job is to focus on mercy and justice. And it's your, it's not, we're not putting that on Luke. Luke, go fix the city. That's not what we're asking of him. It's your job, not just Luke's job. You are your time, your talent, your money. You are the army of mercy he is to lead such that TCPC is known as a fount of mercy in the bluegrass. Such that if TCPC were to close her doors, the needy around us would say, oh no, what are we going to do without Taste Creek Presbyterian Church? How will we survive? That's my dream. That's our dream. And it's happening. Reach out to Luke Find out for yourself and get involved yourself. Such is the way of the merciful. Okay, so mercy is costly compassion from those in power. Individually, when we are harmed, we have the power to show mercy, and Jesus says we must. Socially, when we have the power to help, Jesus says we must. And in this way, his people become the cure to our sin-sick world. This world where every single person is suffering the consequences of sin, being sinned against, and yourself sinning in a need of forgiveness. This sin-sick world needs mercy, and mercy at its core cures the consequences of sin. People like to say kindness will heal our world. That is nothing but hallmark sentimentality. No measure of social pleasantries is going to heal our world. But mercy, costly compassion from those in power, mercy will fix the world. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. He's calling us to do this, to uh, play this role in our world that he has entrusted to us, the bluegrass. And if you take up, if you take up that costly calling, then in the end, you yourself will receive the mercy that you have extended to the world. Let's turn now to the kingdom promise. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy.
Let me clear up a question that you might be asking with this beatitude in particular. Is this saying that only the merciful will be the recipients of God's mercy in the end? Yes, that's how I read it. It's exactly what it says. Just like when you pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You are saying only those who forgive will be forgiven. It's the same concept here. Only the merciful will receive God's mercy. It's that strong. But isn't that contrary to the gospel that we love? Is that not just works righteousness? We earn God's mercy by our good works of mercy? No, that's not what it's saying. You can't earn God's mercy by being merciful. In fact, by definition, mercy cannot be earned. If it's earned, it's not mercy, it's justice. So it can't be that. What is it? What is it saying? It is saying that those who have received the promise of God's mercy will always become a merciful people. The surest sign that God's mercy belongs to us is that it flows from us. Or, stating it negatively for emphasis here, an unmerciful person has no right to claim they have encountered the mercy of God. Because the mercy of God always produces a merciful person. Now listen, Christian, brothers and sisters, of course you don't do mercy perfectly. Neither do I. I literally just said in the first point, we all need to improve in this area. But I know this about you, if you are a Christian, you want to be merciful. You really do. I know that's true of you. The gospel of God's mercy has melted your hard, selfish heart, and now you, like your God, desire mercy. And so if the mercy of God is what produces mercy in us, then the way to grow in your mercy this morning is to proclaim to you again the mercy of God. So, let's celebrate together this kingdom promise that he has for us. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I think deep down, our view of God is that he might show mercy. We approach his throne like Subjects approach an earthly king terrified and trembling. Maybe, just maybe, the king will have mercy. I think this is how we approach God. Boy, I really hope he'll do it. Really hope he'll do it. Friends, Hebrews tells us, let us boldly with confidence approach God's throne to receive mercy. As if to say, there is no way the king will not grant mercy. And there is no way, unless Jesus is lying here, and I would strongly suggest you not call Jesus a liar. Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And let me tell you again, this week, the guarantee of that word, shall. Have mercy on me, O God. This is the repeated cry Throughout the scriptures, the Old Testament can essentially be viewed as one story of God's people crying out, have mercy on us. Have mercy, have mercy, have mercy, have mercy. 
Well, that cry has been heard. More than that, that cry has been answered. God, who is described in Scripture as rich in mercy. What a, what a description that is. God is filthy rich in the currency of mercy. This God who is rich in mercy emptied the storehouses of mercy and gave it all away in His Son, who is the fullness of God's mercy. And the reason His Son can say to us this morning, without hesitation, you shall, not you might, you shall receive mercy, is because He Himself would make good on this promise in this verse. We have defined mercy as costly compassion by those in power. Is there any more fitting description of the gospel of Jesus Christ? He surveys the powerless crowd who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it says he had compassion on them. Compassion. That compassion would prove a costly compassion. You want to talk about costly compassion by those in power? How about omnipotence surrendering his power to have mercy on the powerless? That's what the mercy of God costs, friends. To heal a beaten man left for dead costs the Good Samaritan some time, effort, and money. But Jesus is not merely a Good Samaritan. He is a good Savior, and that cost a cross. I have good news for our merciless cancel culture. A Savior who was canceled to extend mercy to this world. And that cross of his cancellation where the powerful one surrenders his power in the name of costly compassion, is now our blood-bought guarantee that you shall receive mercy. So boldly, not hesitantly, not fearfully, boldly come before his throne to receive the mercy that belongs to you. And what is it that we will receive in his mercy? Remember, mercy has a forgiveness component and a healing component, and both are destined to be yours. You will boldly stand before the throne of God, described in Scripture as the mercy seat. You're going to stand before the mercy seat, and you will cry, have mercy on me, God. All I have to plead is your mercy. Now, you should say it. You should say it, but please know that Jesus has only rendered that a formality. God must have mercy. And so both forgiveness and healing will be given to you. God who knows every sin you have ever committed, even down to the thoughts and intentions of your heart, will say, your sins, they are many, but my mercy is more. You are forgiven forever. I give to you mercy. But not just forgiveness, Mercy means that those with power to help choose to help. But we bear traumatic wounds so severe that none have the power to help us, none but God. This fallen world has done to us what the robbers did to that poor man in the parable of the Good Samaritan. We are utterly bruised and beaten by the fall. There is so much pain in this room. And so we will not just bring our sins to God for his mercy. We will bring our wounds and we will plead for help to the only one who can help us. 
And our merciful God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will never again, it says, be mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. And behold, our merciful God will declare, behold, I make all things new. Brothers and sisters, mercy in this merciless world is not easy. You are signing up for a lifetime of costly compassion, but do not pity the merciful. For blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Let me pray. So we've heard your, the good news of your mercy proclaimed. Now we partake. Would you so impress the mercy of your Son, our Savior, upon our souls that we can't help but become fountains of mercy to the world around us? Oh, Lord, make our church merciful. To do that, we need to be fed with your mercy. And so feed us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.